This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the panel on aging and marginalized communities. My name is Lisa Eiler, and I am a professor in the UCSD Department of Psychiatry, director of the VA Desert Pacific Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center's Mental Health and Aging Unit, and director of the Center for Empathy and Compassion Training in Medical Education. It is my great pleasure to chair this session and introduce you to our two esteemed presenters. First is Dr. Maria Marquin. Dr. Marquin is an associate professor in the departments of medicine and psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego, and director of disparities research in the division of geriatrics, gerontology, and palliative care. I'm honored to call her a colleague and friend. Dr. Marquin is originally from Uruguay and conducts clinical research in both Spanish and English. She is an expert in cross-cultural neuropsychology and disparities in neurocognitive aging, and much of her work has focused on understanding the risk for neurocognitive decline among older Latinos with and without HIV. She has um, also aided the field of neuropsychology by leading efforts to develop tools for the accurate detection of neurological dysfunction via neurocognitive tests among Latinos in the U.S., in addition to her research expertise, Dr. Marquin has dedicated many hours of service locally at our institution, including working with me to develop workshops to enhance the sense of belonging for people of all backgrounds here at UCSD, and she serves on multiple national committees. Finally, Dr. Marquin is a wonderful teacher and mentor who is helping to grow and diversify the next generation of clinical researchers. I'm sure that you will see what I mean when she shares her work on aging and well-being among older adults in both the U.S. and Latin America during the pandemic. Next, I'd like to uh, introduce Dr. Lauren Brown. Dr. Brown is a gerontologist and an assistant professor in the Division of Health Management and Policy at the San Diego State University School of Public Health. There she leads the Linked Fate Data Collective, a data science lab aimed at accurately representing community diversity and developing ways to make sure that data are collected, shared, and visualized in an equitable fashion. With her research, she aims to spotlight both the unique challenges black and brown people face in reaching older adulthood with an emphasis on highlighting through data and storytelling, both health injustices and scientific racism, and to examine positive outcomes and protective resources gained from these adverse experiences, thereby celebrating the highest potentiality of the human spirit. Dr. Brown's studies have examined biomarkers of aging, stress and stress measurement, and research methods in genomics with an equitable and social justice lens. In learning about Dr. Brown's background, I also discovered a fun fact that helps show an additional reason why she's a perfect person to speak in a symposium about success. Dr. Brown was a national championship winning collegiate women's soccer player at the University of Southern California. I know that you will enjoy learning from her about the role of stress in mental health among black and white older adults. So now I will turn it over to Dr. Marquine and you can take it away. Hello, everybody, a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share uh, my work uh, with the audience. I'm very much looking forward to this. Thank you for hosting this symposium. Um, 
So uh, as, thank you for that kind introduction also, uh, Lisa, I really appreciate it. And I think you've said enough about me, I don't have to introduce myself, but I'll just let you know that today I'm gonna be uh, sharing with you some of the research that we've done during the uh, pandemic in adults age 50 plus uh, here in the US and in several countries in Latin America in terms of the impact of the pandemic on well-being and on uh, cognitive health. So that's the overall goal of my, of my presentation. I'll start by sharing with you some uh, data. This is, these are national data that reflect the number of the percent of COVID cases broken down by the major racial or ethnic groups in the US, which are white non-Hispanic, uh, black non-Hispanic and Hispanics or Latinos. So what do you see in the gray uh, bar graphs is the percent that of the total US population that each of these groups represents. So the Hispanic Latino population is about 18% of the US population, black non-Hispanic about 13% and white non-Hispanic about 60%. What you see in red is the percent of COVID-19 cases as of October 18th, just pulled together throughout this pandemic. And um, as you can see, uh, so what it represents the percent uh, per race ethnicity of total cases of COVID-19 in the US. So as you can see, for example, while Hispanics represent about 18% of the population, they represent 26% of the diagnosed COVID-19 cases or reported cases, um, while in while white non-Hispanics represent 60% of the population, they represent 52% of overall cases. And again, for Black, 12% of the population, kind of 12% of cases as well. So these are national data that are widely available reported by the CDC. Uh, these are data from the County of San Diego that are similar in many ways, but they are data from our county. So what you see in the gray uh, bar is the percent of the San Diego County population that is uh, of each of these racial ethnic groups. So 34% of Latinos in uh, of persons in, in San Diego County are of Latino origin or descent, but they represent 50% of the population of COVID-19 cases, 50% of COVID-19 cases, and they represent 44% of COVID-19 related deaths um, as uh, uh, reported by the health and human services agencies here. Um, while, while white represent 30% of the San Diego County population, they represent 36% of of cases and 45% of, uh, sorry, 45% of the population represent 30% of cases and 36% and of COVID-19 related deaths. And then you see also in the black population had that pans out. So this probably doesn't come as a great um, surprise to many of you. I think this has been reported in the media many times how this pandemic is disproportionately impacting certain communities. And this of course just represent three of the communities in our country in our, and, in, and in, our, in our county, uh, there are many more that are not represented here. I just chose to focus on those here uh, because they are the larger um, ethnic racial groups, but there are many more, of course. Uh, if we look at uh, within the Americas, and these are also the data uh, as reported by John Hopkins University. What you can see here, so these are the Americas, we're right here, and the, the dots represent the number of uh, COVID cases. So the bigger the, the circle, 
the more cases in an area. So as you can see, when and I, of course, these are reported data. Uh, we see that this has impacted, of course, everywhere, North America, South America, Central America. Now, the next one represents the cases to fatalities ratios associated with COVID-19. So basically how deadly the virus has been uh, relative to the number of cases of COVID-19 in the different areas. And it, there's a quite of a stark contrast in that. You can see that again, the bigger the dot, the more uh, fatalities uh, uh, per cases. And you can see that there are bigger in many areas in uh, Central and South America. So again, these are uh, widely available uh, data and it just gives you a glimpse of what, you know, one aspect of the pandemic that is the number of cases uh, in the different areas of the country and in the Americas overall. Now, the, the rest of my talk is really going to be focused on uh, sharing with you some research that I did in collaboration with some colleagues and uh, it was led by, by a colleague, Dr. Yaquel Kidos at Harvard University and involved as you can see a bunch of different researchers. These are across Latin America uh, and the US and we're interested in looking at the impact of COVID on the well-being and cognition of older adults in the US and Latin America. So um, we launched this survey actually pretty early on in the pandemic. It's interesting to see in retrospect because when we were started, we we're in such a hurry to you know, get this research going because, you know, we never expected it was going to take uh, this long and we wanted to capture things as they were happening. So the data I'm going to be sharing with you today are data on uh, participants that were community dwelling adults age 50 plus living in the U.S. and in several countries in Latin America. We deploy, uh, we, we collected uh, data in a, a number of uh, people in these countries using both online and phone methods. So we're not doing any in-person uh, evaluations at the time that was not you know, allowed in most uh, places, of course. And the data that we are presenting today was collected between May and September of 2020. So we sent a, a series of surveys for people to complete. Uh, some of the data I'm gonna be focusing on today are one from the Epidemic Pandemic Impact Inventory, uh, which is a measure that basically asked this question that you see listed there. So since the onset of the coronavirus disease pandemic began, what has, um, like what has changed for you and your family? And then the person reports, yes, this has changed for me. Yes, this has changed for a person in the home or no, this has not happened to me. And there's a, a different uh, questions that touch on each of the things that you see uh, you know, the concepts that you see listed there. So infection history, work unemployment, economic hardship, home life, physical distancing and quarantine, social activities, emotional health, physical health problems, and also capture positive changes that people perceived associated with the pandemic. And we also ask people to complete, uh, complete uh, some self-report measures of cognitive and memory problems. So this is what the uh, participants um, produce uh, the data we collected. These are uh, the characteristics, the demographic characteristics of our uh, sample. So as you can see, uh, there were uh, 645 non-Latino whites living in the US that completed the survey, 135 Latinos and 77 non-Latino blacks. Um, age, as is shown here, they had an average uh, of 68, 65 and 66 years of age. 
for each of these groups, education was uh, pretty high. Uh, it is, you know, close to a college degree, so 50 year, 15 years of education for the non-Latino white and the Latino group and 16 years of education for non-Latino black, which 16 years of education corresponds to a college degree. So this is a well-educated sample. This is a sample of convenience. This is not a population-based study. So uh, just to start, you know, being mindful that the data really reflect uh, the reality of some people, some segments of this population, about, uh, you know, 70 to 80% or so of, the, of each of, of these groups were uh, women, uh, with the rest being males. And then in the next um, table there, you can see the same sort of information for the different uh, countries. So we have 100 people from Argentina, 151 from Chile, 308 from Mexico, 152 in Peru. We also uh, collected data in a number of other countries, including in Uruguay, my country of origin, uh, that unfortunately I'm not able to present here today for some um, issues having to do with able to pull all the data together, but hopefully I'll have another chance to present it. We collected data on 1,500 people in Uruguay, similar to what I'm going to be showing today. So it's uh, that's what was one of the positive aspects of the pandemic for me, being able to uh, do research in my country of origin, which I hadn't been able to do. Um, so you can see the demographics there. So in the interest of time, I'm going to keep moving forward. So what I'm going to show you now is some of the results from our from our study. So these are the data on the sample in the United States. So we looked at infection history and work employment. So impact of the pandemic on these areas. And we didn't see any difference uh, across the different races and ethnicity in these areas at that point in time, right? So this was early on in the pandemic, though there was a trend already for Latinos to fare worse in infection history, meaning that they were reporting more COVID-19 infection uh, compared to other groups. Um, but in general, not huge changes, at least early on. Uh, we did see some changes, though, in terms of the report of people of uh, undergoing financial hardship. So Latinos reported more financial hardship than non-Latino whites and Blacks. So what you see here is the list of items that go into this subscale. Um, and what it's represented here is the kind of the percent of items that were endorsed. So Latinos endorse more of these items relative to the other groups. Okay, and then we looked at uh, home life. So, and these were the items that were included in home life. Uh, so, you know, from things like having to take care of children in the home to having to move or relocate, becoming homeless, more physical or uh, verbal uh, conflict within family members. So that's the type of item that was captured by this scale. And we found that there was greater negative impact of the pandemic on home life in non-Latino Blacks compared to Latinos and, and, and Latino uh, non-Latino whites. Uh, so that was another difference there. We didn't see, uh, while everybody was reporting, you know, changes in social activities and having to physically distance and be in quarantine for having been exposed to COVID, um, we didn't see significant group differences on the social impact of the pandemic across the different groups, again, at that point in time in, in our sample. Uh, we also didn't see differences in emotional health and well-being or in a report of new physical or health problems uh, by different groups. Again, people were reporting some 
some problems. So there was an average of you know, kind of two problems reported out of seven in terms of emotional health and well-being, and about two or three for physical health uh, problems. But they were not different different across the groups. Um, this one is one that I find particularly interesting. So this subscale, we looked at uh, positive changes associated with the pandemic. So these are all items that were trying to capture what things, what changes might have happened in people's lives that are positive in nature, like spending more quality time with partner, spouse, or children, improved relationships, new connections, maybe uh, being uh, trying to be more uh, time in nature, outdoors, developing new hobbies or activities because of the life circumstances, maybe eating healthier. Um, so when we looked at the data, we found that even though, you know, if you might remember the earlier data that I reported that Latinos had more financial hardship, potentially a little bit more COVID infection, and non-Latino Blacks reported also more negative changes in, in home life, both of those groups, Latinos and non-Latino Blacks, reported more positive changes associated with the pandemic as well. Um, we also looked at cognitive and memory complaints. Again, these are by self-report, so these are not um, kind of performance-based assessments, but just kind of what people were experiencing. And we saw that non-Latino whites uh, were reporting more cognitive concerns than Latinos and non-Latino Blacks, but with no differences in memory overall, uh, just in general sort of cognitive concerns, like maybe having their mind being a little bit more foggy um, and maybe not paying attention just as well as they used to. So that was what non, the concerns that non-Latino whites had um, were more increased compared to Latinos and Blacks. Then as one of the aims of the projects was to look at the relationship between uh, whether the negative impact of the pandemic was like in, in home life, in um, financially, all of these different scales that I've shown you, whether that was related to who reported more cognitive or memory complaints. And we found that the great, the worse the negative impact of the pandemic that people reported, the more cognitive and memory problems that they reported across all groups. So uh, this table shows our data from Latin America, it represented in a different way. So what you see here is for each of the scales that I mentioned before, like infection history, work employment, economy, home life, and so forth, what, how did people that were completed the survey in each of these countries, how did they compare to Latinos in the US? And so any, I know the numbers might not kind of represent a lot, but really the point here is not so much looking at the specific numbers, but looking at how uh, people in this country were faring compared to Latinos in the U.S. If you see numbers that are in red represent that people in the Latin American countries were doing worse or reported doing worse in these areas compared to U.S. Latinos. And um, in green is if people in the Latin American country were reporting doing better than U.S. Latinos. So a lot of our U.S. Latino sample is of uh, Mexica origin or dis Mexican origin or descent. So that's why I'm presenting this here first. And at that point in Mexico, things were also pretty hard. They reported in another, a number of different areas in people's life being worse than Latinos here. 
including emotional health and well-being. Yet, again, we see this kind of paradox that even though a lot of things are worse, they're reporting more positive changes as well associated with the pandemic compared to U.S. Latinos who already were high compared to uh, non-Latino whites here in the U.S. Peru, it's a similar sort of pattern of, you know, worse in a number of things, but better in terms of, of positive changes. In Argentina at that time, the virus hadn't quite taken a hold yet. Uh, things got much worse the months to follow, and we have longitudinal data, so we'll be able to compare that. But in Argentina and Chile, so further down in Latin America, the, the pandemic really took hold of those countries a little bit later than this. It was still happening, of course, but not as bad as it happened when we were starting to get better. They started to get worse. So these are the data that uh, that we have at this point. Uh, what we this last piece that I want to share with you is the report of cognitive and memory uh, concerns that there were kind of not a consistent pattern found at that time. Some people reporting or some countries reporting worse cognitive or memory problems compared to US Latinos. And again, in Argentina where things and Chile where things were still not that bad at the time, less problems. So uh, these are overall uh, what we have. So the main conclusions at this point is that we observed a differential impact of the pandemic by race ethnicity, uh, in the U.S., again, during the early stages of the pandemic, uh, at least, that kind of go um, or underscore this notion that not only are there more cases um, and COVID-related deaths within certain communities, but this is impacting uh, the lives of people in many different ways, regardless of whether they were exposed to the virus or not. Um, Interestingly, we saw that despite more negative consequences and the pandemic on, on a number of aspects of life and well-being in Latino and non-Latino Blacks, they also both of this group represented more or reported more positive changes, suggesting maybe a more positive uh, reframing and, and coping with the changes that are happening at the pandemic. Again, this is data from some time ago now, more than a year ago. Uh, and we do have longitudinal data and we're looking now and looking how things, investigating how things can cha will change or not. It'd be interesting to see whether this pattern kind of uh, continues of, or whether it hits a point where people have been impacted so badly that it's really hard to see the positive um, in the difficult um, life changes. Um, Latinos living in several countries in Latin America that are reported in general also experienced more negative impacts, but as, again, also reported more positive reframing. So a similar thing of what we saw here in the U.S. Um, so our future directions, there's many, you know, there's a, several limitations of this study, including that it's not population-based, it only includes a subset of people um, with certain characteristics. But we are we're in the process of incorporating data from other countries, as I mentioned, Uruguay, my country of origin, but also Brazil and several other countries in Latin America. And we are continuing to examine how things change longitudinally over time and potentially down the line investigate whether this impacts the onset of neurological conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. What is the impact of the pandemic on those conditions? That's one of the long-term goals of uh, this line of work. Uh, so with that, I wanted to thank you and thank uh, uh, 
Dr. Eiler are my co-presenters uh, and my co-presenter, Dr. Brown. And uh, thank you for your attention um, and for uh, allowing me to share this work with you. Uh, this work was funded by the National Institute of Health, the Alzheimer's Association, and a philanthropic gift from Mr. Irene Tragen. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Maria. Great presentation. So uh, Dr. Brown, take it away. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I am really delighted to be here. Uh, it's always great to be a part of aging conferences really geared towards aging that encompass both uh, our research community and academic community, as well as you know the larger community um, of people who are directly affected by um, us all getting older. So really happy to be here. Um, Thank you so much for the introduction, Lisa. It's very kind of you to also mention that uh, I was a national champion. It's something that gets um, that I love to bring up, but that I don't ever want to bring up myself. So thank you, thank you for doing that for me. And I'm also really excited to be presenting behind Maria because one, because her presentation was amazing and she's a scholar that I respect a lot, but also because the content of her work sets up uh, segues nicely into what I'm going to talk about today. So the title of my talk is Measuring More Than Exposure, Does Appraisal Matter for Black-White Differences in Anxiety and Depressive Symptoms Among Older Adults? And while this work isn't directly measuring older adult health and well-being during the pandemic, there's a lot of application and things we can tie to what's happening currently in the pandemic as well. So um, uh, one of the reasons why I really am happy to be behind Maria in this talk is that she kind of already set up how oftentimes researchers go after the disadvantaged narrative in health and aging. And that is really um, even more so the case for thinking about race and ethnic differences in health. We always frame um, minority populations in this story of disadvantage. And while I do think that it is incredibly important to highlight the undue stress burdens and undue um, experiences, especially related to something like COVID, that's an extremely important experience to highlight for black and brown populations in particular. It's not the only or the definitive um, experience of what it means to be black and brown and aging in this country. So I, I think it's just historically, it's inaccurate to reduce our experiences to, um, experiences of trauma, pain, excess exposure, greater disease, greater mortality. Um, that is part of the story, but it's not the entire story. And oftentimes academic research um, and scholarship more generally ignores some of the, the ways that um, our population, our minority populations are actively coping with the excessive amount of stress exposure that they're under. So that is really the, the high point of this talk today is that my work in general is trying to interrogate spaces where black and brown people are actively adapting and coping. I'm worried about calling it resilience um, just because resilience has taken such an interesting, uh, it's, a, it's its own set of, of research questions that uh, may not directly apply to this, but it is for this is for sure an example of how black and brown people are coping in their active environment in order to survive well into older adulthood. So I am incredibly fascinated by paradoxes in health and paradoxes have generally um, been referred to as 
spaces in the health disparities literature where people of color don't look as they should look, which is worse than whites. So white, whites and health disparities literature are the gold standard of health. It's who we always contextualize the best health outcomes next to in the United States and who we're always comparing our minority populations to. And I like to push back on that idea, one that white people should not be the gold standard of health, but also that they're not the gold standard across every outcome. And one example, or one of the most famous paradoxes in the health disparities literature is the black white mental health paradox. So you can see in this graph here on the right, um, I'm showing an example of, uh, this has now been shown in five nationally representative surveys that um, when you look at uh, depression and diagnoses of depression, as well as generalized anxiety disorder, you have black people here in the dark bar and white people in the gray bar. You can see that um, non-Hispanic whites tend to report more rates, uh, higher rates of depression and anxiety relative to black people. And that has been termed the black white mental health paradox. It's a paradox because if you look across almost every other physical health outcome, Black people fare worse um, in terms of their aging profiles and uh, concepts around accelerated aging and general ideas about, you know, worse stress exposure over the life course. So there are a couple of really interesting hypotheses about why the paradox exists. Um, but importantly, the paradox exists despite the fact that racial and ethnic minorities look worse on all major health outcomes because they are exposed to greater stress. They also are facing race-based stress um, that are often not stressors that white people face, so things like overt discrimination, especially when you're talking about older adults and Black older adults that are currently living. They've lived through the civil rights movement. They lived through Jim Crow civil segregation. And now the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the killing of George Floyd at the intersection of, of when COVID hit and, and George, George Floyd's murder was... Um, a popular social justice movement during this past summer. Then you add the fact that Black people are also tend to have lower levels of socioeconomic status, so lower levels of income, education, and wealth, um, and then also have the dual disadvantage of being both a racial and ethnic minority and have, having lower socioeconomic status. And then, of course, worse physical health. So worse physical health and worse mental health are often related. You can't always discern um, which one comes first. So sometimes uh, poor mental health can lead to poor physical health and poor physical health can also lead to more anxiety and depression. So these things are related. But moral of the story is that we really don't have good theory, hypotheses or explanations for why something like the black white mental health paradox exists. Paradoxes are historically, they're unexpected and they're understudied. Um, so we don't understand them and not, and we still don't understand what is be behind the black white mental health paradox. But one of the hypotheses is around measurement. Um, I think one of the, the important contexts that should always be stated when thinking about mental health is that it's a, it's a cultural concept. Um, and that, you know, it's mental health has been defined largely for and within white culture in the United States. Um, the diagnostic manual is really was developed to diagnose, diagnose mental health and issues related to mental health for majority white populations. And now we're fitting that into our minority populations in the United States, which can have some um, unexpected consequences. 
But regardless, there's this really interesting feature of the paradox where um, Black Americans have been shown to have lower rates of actual diagnosed psychiatric disorders rated to, and there's, there's a whole list of psychiatric disorders that Black people, Black Americans have been shown to have lower rates of for a lifetime in the past year, but that includes anxiety and depression. However, um, when you look at something like nonspecific psychological distress, so um, acting about general distress in your life in the last month, in the last two weeks, Black Americans tend to report higher rates of nonspecific psychological distress. So that suggests that there is probably real issues in terms of measurement around mental health issues in this country that uh, change how we, um, how Black people are diagnosed um, or whether or not they're considered to actually have mental health problems. But I think one of the issues that we don't think about when we're thinking about paradoxes is we always want to see if measurement in terms of the psychological um, outcomes are the issue. But we never really think about the other side of the coin, which is how we are measuring stress at the population level, especially for how we measure stress for minority, racial and ethnic minorities. So in these, I, I use um, large nationally representative data that speak to the um, aging experience for all older adults in the United States. I'll talk more about this, my data sets um, as we move through this presentation. But um, one of the important things is that in these large data sets, we ask older adults to rate their acute exposures to things like, did you lose your job in the past six months? Did you get a divorce? Was there a death in the family, right? These are important exposures that we need to measure, but they have also some really extreme limitations. And one is that it assumes that this, these stressors are these uniform experiences, and that if we add them up, we'll understand somebody's stress experience. And two, it's really assuming that these stress exposures have a really constrained time frame. So they happen, then what? You know, what happens next? We don't measure what happens next. We just, we just assume that here's the event and that's gonna be connected to health in some way. And actually there's a, um, a psychologist, he was at UCLA, I'm not sure where he's at now. Uh, he wrote a paper in 2018, that's this uh, citation here to your right. And the paper is titled Stressnology, and he goes on to describe how we've taken some of the most superficial pieces of the stress experience and tried to equate that to health, knowing that there's so much that goes up underneath that stress experience that we don't measure. So he, he's equating stress, our stress research, calling it Stressnology to phrenology, which was a an old school study of um, psychology where they would just look at the shape of the head and the brain in order to make some kind of inference about your personality or um, your behavior. So it's a really, he's basically just saying it's a really superficial way to think about the stress experience and that we can do a better job of thinking about that. I think we've known this also for a while because all the way back in, so stress, stress research reach, reaches back quite a bit. It's a very well-developed area of research that's really just centered around stress expo exposure. But we have citations all the way back to 1984 that talked about perceived stress and this idea that you have to actually acknowledge it and take in the threat, acknowledge that it's a threat, and then respond. And that uh, acknowledgement starts within your head, right? It's a perceived stress experience, it's neurological, the reaction to your environment. And that's what actually kicks off the stress and health cascade. And if you don't perceive something as a stressor, 
then it's not a stressor, right? You have to acknowledge that. And each person would maybe consider stress stressors differently and how much they really stress somebody out. So uh, Lazarus and Folkman, these are old school um, uh, stress researchers that said in 1984, the degree to which a situation is perceived as threatening and elicits a stress response is a psychological process. And it's a function of the individual's appraisals of that situation. So we've kind of lost sight of the fact that appraisal, this appraisal process is really something maybe we should consider in stress research, especially when it's related to health and well-being of, of racial and ethnic minorities. So, um, you know, I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, do racial and ethnic, are there racial and ethnic differences in this idea of perceived stressfulness? There are not a bunch of, um, there are not many studies that have looked at racial and ethnic differences in appraisal or how you perceive your stress. And there are definitely not racial, there are definitely not studies that do that at a national level. You know, there's often smaller studies that look at um, small homogenous groups of older adults, which makes it hard to apply to, you know, diverse populations of older adults who are experiencing a, a wider range of stressors. So, that was one huge goal of mine was to start to think about how we might be able to measure or capture a stress appraisal process or perceived stressfulness of stress, knowing that not all older adults or not all people will consider stress exposure um, upsetting or stressful. And why would there be differences then in, uh, why would there be racial and ethnic differences in how people perceive stress? You know, people think that stress appraisals are this individual level variable that would not have group context for which, you know, the stress experience is happening. And um, I want to push back a little bit, a little bit on that idea that, you know, there's these cultural and socioeconomic contexts that are really the framework that stress is happening um, and your stressful experiences are interpreted and assigned meaning within that space. And a lot of times, racial and ethnic minorities share cultural and social economic contexts, which means they're filtering stress through maybe similar lenses more, more closely than maybe they would with a, somebody from a different or racial or an ethnic group. And all of these things are going to influence the extent to which any event is going to be appraised as stressful, right? Another important point in thinking about why racial and ethnic minorities might think, might think of their stress differently is that not only are they exposed to stressors that are specific to their race and ethnic group, they also have race-specific positive resources. So in general, you know, um, our white and higher educated groups are going to have more access to education, income, and wealth these material resources that they might use to combat the effects of stress on health. Racial and ethnic minorities have fewer access, have less access to education, income, and wealth as a means to buffer the effects of stress on health. So they have to be more creative in thinking about which ways they might be able to do this. Um, I think especially for uh, Black Americans, something like religion, and if you think about the history of religion in the United States, uh, Black Americans have, uh, when they were enslaved, um, were using churches as spaces of liberation to talk to each other, to think about, uh, they were social forms of social support, um, ways to get out from under the master's eye, potentially. So the church and religion has functioned very differently for Black communities in the United States. And it's been a source of racial pride, um, social networking, 
strong sense of racial identity can be developed in these spaces. And now, you know, that we're, we're further away from slavery, these social, these types of um, positive resources are now sources of space that racial and ethnic minorities can use to buffer the effects of stress. So relying on your network to help um, uh, get some financial resources or thinking about having a strong racial identity, what that might do to buffer the effects of stress in the United States. That can go a long way. There's some there's re research on each of these resources as being potential stress buffering um, spaces. So racial and ethnic minorities are going to have protective factors. They're going to first be exposed to stress on a different level. They may appraise that stress differently than other racial and ethnic groups. And then they're going to have a set of protective factors that might help them buffer stress differently than other, um, other racial and ethnic groups. So this can have differential effects then on mental and physical health. And oftentimes in health disparities research, all we're doing is measuring differences in mental and physical health, but we're not capturing all the variability that happens before we get to those differences in health. So that could be part of the issue of why we're having a hard time explaining these mental health outcomes. The other thing that I wanted to stress was that um, our older adult populations in general actually respond to stress um, more positively than uh, they're able, they're better able to respond to stress than younger adults. There's a lot of reason why that may be. Um, but in general, we think it's related to enhanced regulatory processes around emotional well-being. This idea of like wisdom and with age and being able to respond to stress um, potentially more effectively, or maybe you've seen this before, it's no longer something that really spikes your stress response. There's also something called the positivity effect um, that has been shown in older adults where they, they actively switch their mental energy away from negative stimuli towards more positive stimuli. And that process may be some uh, one way that uh, black and brown older adults are shifting away from some of the negative effects of stress to more positive, um, the more positive impacts of adversity. One thing that I will mention is that uh, there is a difference, however, between acute versus chronic stress. Acute stress being um, stress that happens really in a short amount of time, like this graph down here, this blue, uh, blue bar is representing acute stress, while this gray bar is representing chronic stress. And the difference here really being the time at which you have to deal with this. Chronic stress is ongoing. You have no idea when it's going to end. It's the context from which all of our lives are sitting up under. And it's something that's kind of just hovering here. While acute stress happens, it has a high point, but then it comes down and you start to regulate and it's no longer a stressor anymore. And those chronic stressors may actually be harder for older adults to adapt to. Um, simply because they're going to have fewer resources oftentimes um, to be able to, to buffer the effects of chronic ongoing stress. So for example, um, if an older adult is facing housing insecurity, it's not as easy to just pop out and go get a job to try to fight the effects of those, of that stressor in particular. So in this study, we're thinking about chronic stress and whether or not stress exposure or stress appraisal differentially affect anxiety and depressive symptoms for blacks and whites and how that might buffer the effects of these. So my data are coming from the health and retirement study. It's a nationally representative sample of older adults that oversampled both black and Latinx adults to make sure we had adequate numbers of both. 
Our measure of chronic stress has two components. It has this stress exposure component. They're asking about all of the chronic stressors you may be exposed to, whether that be housing problems, financial strain, problems in a close relationship versus our stress appraisal, um, which is just a response of how upsetting any one of these stress exposures are. So I counted up all their stress exposures, but also averaged how upsetting these stress exposures were to create two different dimensions of the stress experience for white and black older adults. And we looked at that relative to both anxiety and depressive symptoms in the way they're commonly measured in uh, nationally representative surveys. Here's a quick sample characteristics. The mean age of my sample was 66.3 years old, 91% white, 9% black, 54% uh, were women, 46% men, and 51% had a high school degree or less. So here's where the findings get interesting. So our our older adults, of course, we have typical what we expect race differences in stress exposure where black older adults are overexposed to stress, while white older adults report lower chronic stress exposure. But what's interesting is when we looked at chronic stress appraisal, you can see that white older adults on average are reporting their stress as more upsetting than our black older adults. And I wanted to see if that really lines up with differences in anxiety and depression. Well, as soon as I started looking at dif race differences in anxiety and depression, you can see that our white group has actually lower rates of both anxiety and depressive symptoms. So there is no evidence of the black-white mental health paradox among older adults. It can be different at different points in the age group, but in general, in our sample, black older adults have more symptomology. So the difference here is that we're not measuring diagnoses. We're doing a count of symptoms, of anxiety symptoms and depressive symptoms which don't correspond perfectly to diagnoses. So that may be part of the measurement issue I was talking about earlier, but regardless, there's no paradox. But it's still interesting to see how both exposure and appraisal are related to depressive symptoms. So this is just showing exposure. Um, as exposure goes up across anxiety and depressive symptoms, you have a an uh, increase in anxiety and depressive symptoms with increase in stress exposure. So stress exposure is graphed here across the bottom. Black people are in blue, white people are in this teal green color. And as we move up, you can see that black people have more anxiety systems, symptoms with more stress exposure. But when you look at depressive symptoms, you actually see the opposite. You see what's actually more um, consistent with the paradox, where as you have increases in stress exposure, you have lower, um, you have similar amounts, sorry, similar amounts of, or black people have lower amounts of depressive symptoms. So when you adjust, when you do the same thing and adjust for appraisal, it totally takes out all of the race differences in depressive symptoms, suggesting that appraisal is genuinely a coping mechanism. But black older adults in general have a really unique stress experience and appraisal may be a really productive coping mechanism that's reducing anxiety and depressive symptoms. This work needs to be tested in many more samples. Um, but the idea being that these older adults, these black older adults are really just more exposed to the stress and may be more effective at coping in older adulthood. Um, so I wanna thank my funders and thank you guys in the audience for your time and we will open it up for questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. That was fascinating. So much good learning there from both you and Dr. Marquine. So I'm excited to, to start the Q&A off. 
Um, so one question that came in has to do with adverse childhood events and whether um, ACE scores or considering adverse childhood events um, has played a role in any of the data that you've presented, or if you could just talk a little bit about what's happening in childhood and how that might affect older adults. There, so there is a measure in the health and retirement study of early life trauma prior to the age of 18. And um, I don't, I haven't used that data, that variable in my research, um, specifically because I think a lot of the stress research has already shown that if we sum up exposures, it's pretty directly related to health outcomes where, you know, you just, it's kind of the kitchen sink method where a lot of people have done every stress exposure you could possibly have and tried to connect that to health at the end of life. I think it would be interesting to figure out how specifically each type of stress impacts mental health. So something like traumatic life events before the age of 18 probably have very specific mental health effects. And may, and if to, to measure them in older adulthood, I don't know if anxiety and depression would be the best ways to do it. There might be other types of mental health outcomes that are more impacted by early life events, or maybe not. Maybe that's the beginning of, of where you start to see differences uh, in um, anxiety and depression. But I think what's the next phase for aging research and for research in general is to map these things across the life course. And so I think that's really what you're getting at is that stress exposure is varying over the entire life course. And oftentimes we're just looking at the snapshot of what we get in older adulthood and trying to make some kind of assumption about that. But we fail to capture how different all the lived experiences are prior to us getting them in older adulthood. And that's really where a lot of the differentiation is happening that we're missing in these, in these surveys. Great. And Dr. McKean, do you feel like that, um, I, I'm pretty sure you didn't measure adverse childhood events in the questionnaire for the pandemic, but I wonder if you have any sense of whether some of the positive reappraisal that people seem to be doing might be from a lifetime of experiencing negative events, maybe not on quite the scale and scope of the pandemic, but where they've sort of had practice in sort of seeing the bright side of, of adverse events. Yeah, uh, Lisa, it's interesting that you asked that because that was kind of part of my um, hypothesis of what might be driving at least some of this, of the more positive reappraisal is the experience of having had to dealt with tough things uh, in life. It relates also to what Dr. Brown presented earlier as well in terms of appraisal and uh, how, you know, minoritized, marginalized groups kind of learn to reframe or appraise in a different way. Uh, negative life events. I think the uh, the other thing I would mention as well that you know might be hard to uh, put my thoughts very clearly, but I also think it's you know there's certain experiences that are clearly you know traumatic, clearly things that are not you know by no measure of the imagination you know one would think that are good for somebody's health. But I, I also am very mindful that there are also some other experiences that um, depends on how you look at it like they are adverse uh, and they are considered adversity through some lens. But when you look at it from a different side, uh, different perspective, maybe the people that are undergoing it are not perceiving it as, as so bad. So, um, you know what I mean? So part of it, for example, in the, in the impact of the pandemic, I always wonder, you know, part of the 
reason why there's so many cases, say, especially within the Latino community, is what it's called kind of crowded housing, right? I also find it so interesting that people call it crowded housing because it's also relative. You know, uh, you know what is crowded? It depends how you measure that and who looks at it. Uh, is it, you know, for people in a home crowded? Uh, well, depends on how big the house and so forth. But it also means like there's a lot of support within that. So I think just in, in the... Uh, so say, for example, in the impact of home life that we saw those differences, yes, maybe there is more conflict because there's more people and more there, but there's also more support within that conflict, right? And we see that in Latinos a lot, that there might be more report of verbal arguments, but there's also more report of being supportive to each other. So again, it's not completely a completely well-fleshed out thought. I think what I wanted to add is that I think it's always extremely important to when we are developing these measures. And again, going along with what Dr. Brown said, is that we, we need to be mindful that a lot of these measures were developed um, with you know, kind of the eye or being mindful of the non-Latino white experience, and that that might be different in minoritized groups. And developing the measures that really get at what is adverse, what is maybe, maybe not, is crucial in being able to capture kind of how these things are experienced. So that was my long answer to, to your question. <laughs> Great. I wonder if either of you could talk about whether you're, you think your findings would be different or what the context of um, the long-term care facility might be. So um, in terms of older persons from marginalized communities living in these long-term care facilities, um, you know, how... How, how might that be different? What, what you're seeing might be different there when they are perhaps separated from family, particularly during the pandemic when there weren't, wasn't uh, the ability to be visited as much and that sort of thing. I think one thing to keep in mind is that we, you know, there has been clear reports that long-term care facilities that house people from minoritized backgrounds uh, have shown worse COVID outcomes, just COVID infection. So there's higher rates of infection, but also there's more deaths uh, associated with COVID. So and more severity of COVID, like worse severity of COVID within facilities that house members of marginalized, uh, marginalized communities. And this, it's, you know, part, at least partly due to um, these long-term care facilities are facilities that have less resources, usually have higher proportions of Medicaid um, participants. And so they don't have the same types of resources to deal with uh, an event such as the pandemic as others do. So we're already kind of starting with the situations and resources in these long-term care facilities are not the same across all of them. And so we're already starting from a disadvantage uh, standpoint. So I haven't, I haven't seen data at this point, I mean, there absolutely could be, um, but I, I haven't seen data on kind of well-being overall, but I wouldn't be surprised as you're kind of alluding to Dr. Eiler of, of the, you know, the, that it's likely that this is going to be harder in certain groups um, with uh, not only the situation having to do with COVID and COVID infection being worse, but resources not being as good. And so if you're, if the resources just is not as good for anything, you have a stressor, it just compounds itself. So that would be um, my, um, my, you know, my prediction. I think the other uh, thing to consider, though, is at least within the members of the Latino community, is less common to use long-term care facilities along, you know, many times people really try hard to keep 
um, you know, there's this multi-generational house, uh, housing situations and people really try to keep uh, family members uh, within their own homes. So uh, that might play a role as well as to who, from these marginalized backgrounds, who is in a long-term care facility and who is not um, to begin with. So those are my thoughts. I'll, I'll add quickly that the health and retirement study is uh, intentionally does not include people who live in nursing homes. So this data is exclusive to like healthy or to older adults who are living in community-based settings. And I think that's a really big limitation of the data, uh, the data that we're using. But I will say that in this population, when we measured caregiving as a chronic stressor, our Black and Latinx older adults, especially Latinx older adults, do not consider caregiving a stressor. It's exactly what Maria was talking about is that, you know, the stressors are not equivalent and caregiving is, is a role that um, I think is a cultural responsibility in different spaces and it's not, you the language around it, how it's described and the stress it puts on you, I think is internalized very differently. Um, but I will say in nursing homes, your protective resources are entirely removed, especially cultural specific protective resources, your connection to your community, your church, your social networks, um, all of that has evaporated as soon as you separate an older adult from the community that they live in. And that is gonna in and of itself have uh, negative mental health consequences. Great. Another set of questions has to do with the key role perhaps that coping then plays in mental health and whether um, there's lessons from, from your research, um, Dr. Brown, about how we could better uh, teach people to cope better. The stress exposure that minority older adults are facing needs to be a way of reducing mental health consequences of stress exposure, rather than trying to think of ways to um, encourage people to just cope with the stress they're currently under. So for example, in our sample, um, Black and Latinx older adults are two to three times more likely to be exposed to housing insecurity and financial strain in terms of chronic stressors. Those are things in older adulthood that should be provided and or insured by social security and beyond. And as a society, we don't do a good job of ensuring our Black and Latinx older adults have housing and economic security through that last third of life. I think that's an incredibly, oh, that's, an, that's a problem. Um, but I think what I want to make sure I stress is that these populations are finding ways to adapt. And while, you know, I, I think you can absolutely learn something from the beautiful way that Black and Latinx older adults have learned to survive well into older adulthood, not just survive, thrive. They're not just surviving. They're actively saying that despite this stress, I'm determined to still live out my life in a certain way and still can find joy and still can find my community and beyond. Um, but there's something to be said about the wisdom that is inherent in these communities based on the amount of adversity that they face. And I think that that has developed into very strong coping mechanisms that, you know, people could have something to learn from for sure. Thanks, everyone. And thanks especially to the two wonderful speakers for sharing your wisdom with us and appreciate it very much. And we'll move on to the next session. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.